Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. One thing that I sort of get the sense is important is not being embarrassed about not knowing things. Hello, welcome to Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am thrilled about doing this episode. I am a, there's certain people I've always wanted to have on the show because just the way their minds work to me is so interesting and in certain cases so beautiful. And Randall Monroe has just always been on that list. He is the person behind XKCD, which is this webcomic. And I don't know if you're not, if you're not into the XKCD world, I don't exactly know how to explain it to you. It is stick figure webcomics. Um, they're nerdy and they're human and they're kind and they're curious. And they're on the one hand, very, very scientific. And then on the other hand, very concerned with what it is to to live life as a person, right? Like the hardship and the love and, and how to be gentle to one another. And there's just always been something very beautiful in that project, but also incredibly creative. He does this webcomic a couple times a week, and then every so often he will just drop something dramatic and enormous and strange, a, a huge map that you have to explore and couldn't possibly ever see to the end of, or 3,000 plus frames of a story making a kind of animation that come out one every hour for four months. Just stuff that you wonder, like, how did he come up with it? And then he'll he'll produce these books. Um, he had this one called Thing Explainer, which is somebody who does explanatory journalism. I just thought it was genius, where he just, <laughs> he just explained things in the world, complicated things in the world, using only the thousand most common words in the English language. And it's just such a cool project. And then he has a new one uh, called How To. Uh, the, the subtitle of this one is Absurd Scientific Advice for common real-world problems. And then he takes questions like how to dig a hole or how to like mail a package or how to build a lava moat. And just using physics offers you, I don't exactly, he calls it bad advice. I don't want exactly want to call it bad advice, but I would say it's very literal advice in ways that end up illuminating the underlying question in really fascinating ways. So I was so thrilled that he was open to coming on the show. I wanted to talk to him uh, for a very long time. And I more or less had this idea that I would have this gimmick of asking him how-to questions, right? Both using some from the book and then some from um, his own life uh, to, to try to get sort of the way he thinks out. And it fell apart pretty quickly, I would say. <laughs> I did not hold to, to the conceit I bring up right at the beginning. But um, but he does, I think, drop a lot of fascinating wisdom. And if you really want to hear how his mind works, which comes out, I think, throughout the episode, I think it's a, actually a great conversation. But, but make sure not to miss the book recommendations here. In some ways, the book recommendations are, I felt, where he opened up the most. And you could just really see the way he thinks. 
um, and which was such a pleasure for me. It's one of the few episodes where I kind of, I don't, I do not, I would say fanboy out in the conversation, but I'm not going to lie to you all. Um, I, I've had this guy's stuff hanging in my house for years, so I fanboyed out a little bit getting to have the conversation. As always, my email is EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. Again, EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. Here's Randall Monroe. Randall Monroe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. So for, for listeners, um, your new book is called How To. It mm-hmm. is, what is it? How, how would you describe it? Um, it's a book where I take a bunch of ideas that seem like they're probably bad ideas for solving everyday problems and work through what would happen if you tried them and try to figure out whether they really are as bad as they sound. Um, mostly they are, but <laughs> it's interesting to see why. So the book, like a, not just some of your other books, but some of the work you've done on your comic sort of exists within a constraint to, to help create the creativity. And I thought maybe we'd exist within the same gimmick of how-tos. So some will be from the book, some will be just from life. Um, but I thought I'd start here, because uh, I'm somebody who's bad at math, uh, did not even take much physics. How do you learn to love physics? For me, I think it's, uh, I don't I, I don't feel like I really like math, you know? Um, I don't believe you. Somehow. No, 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 I feel like like it's fun. Like sometimes there are really cool things in it. I like, but like, I feel, I feel like people have a sense that I would like look at an equation on the wall and be like, oh, it's like a painting. I want to, you know, mess with it. Or I just look at it and think like, OK, how hard is this? You know, do I have to solve this right now or can I avoid it somehow? Um, but what what uh, uh, the reason I I get excited about doing physics is that like it lets me figure things out about the actual world. You know, I, I have a really hard time with um, with math that gets really abstract um, or fields where where I can't kind of see and picture and like I have no reason to care about the result. So so I like physics because it's kind of straddles the line between it's abstract enough that you can apply kind of these simple mathematical tools to get answers, uh, to get, you know, clear, concrete answers. But um, it's not completely divorced from reality. You're talking about real things that can give you real answers about the world. Um, and so it's it. I think math is exciting because I can apply it to things. My um, my dad is a mathematician, like mm-hmm. an actual abstract, serious. There are no numbers in the work he does. It's all just Greek letters kind of yeah, mathematician. Yeah. And I am um, have grown up with a like a deep recognition that I will never truly understand the work he does, and it has always pained me. Every now and then, someone tries to explain. Like I'll I'll read something about algebraic geometry, and I'm just like, none of these are real things. I don't you know like. It, Whereas my favorite my favorite branch is math. Uh, my favorite branch of math is probably probability, because like you can get really far along in probability, and the questions are still like about I'm going to pull five marbles out of a jar, or like if I put these cards out on the table, you know what are your chances of this? And like you'll get incredibly advanced probability problems, but they're still like kind of based on a scenario you might see in a game show, and that is, uh, uh, I think, why it's so appealing to me is, like, I know why I want to do this math, and that makes me enthusiastic enough to, like, work my way through the the complicated and boring but parts. Th- there's something in your mind or in your experience, though, that helps give you that, I know why I want to do this math. It helps, you seem to look at problems and realize that there is a physics-oriented solution to them in a lot of, in a way that a lot of people who enter physics do not see that, right? It just seems like a hard subject that they don't fully understand. So where do you think that part came from, that unusually tight linkage between physics as being both a discipline, but a discipline that you can apply to not just the world that we see, but all kinds of interesting questions about the world that we don't see? I don't really know. You know, one thing that I was—I—I I just a random memory that just came back was when I was when I was a kid. Uh, 
um, for some reason, my parents, uh, I had gotten a, they, they had this 100-foot uh, tape measure you could unspool. And they marked out 100 feet on the road. And uh, me and my siblings would, like, try to run it to see how fast, because we had, like, a stopwatch, and see how fast we could run. And I remember my parents, one of my parents showing me the that you could take the time and the distance and, like, divide them and figure out how fast you were running. And, like, it was the same, you know, in miles per hour. And it was, like, the same as uh, the unit that, on the car speedometer. And I, I remember thinking it was really cool that you could just do this, uh, uh, apply these, like, rules on a piece of paper and find out, like, can I run faster than a car or not? And I can't. But <laughs> but I remember that moment of, like, oh, so this is why you do this, because you can figure this stuff out. And then I think it kind of, I don't know, they say, like, the more math you know, the easier it is to learn new things in math, just because you can triangulate from the stuff you already know. Um, so maybe it's sort of like that. Like, the more I the more I see ways, like, learn ways to solve, like, interesting problems that pop up, the more confident I am, like, and the more, uh, you know, ideas I have for how to approach new ones. And and so I, maybe it sort of snowballs. This is an odd question, uh, but... Actually, no. Compared to the questions you answer, this is in no way and this is a totally normal <laughs> question. But it is a, an actual life ambition of mine to know math. Like if I were going to take a year sabbatical for my work, I would devote it to to trying to learn math. Like how would you how would you uh, advise an adult who wants to learn math, like for whatever value that means to you, to go about doing it? It feels somehow impossible to me. And it shouldn't because, like, I learn things for a living. But it, it just, like, where you start so that I could be somebody who knows math <laughs> seems very hard. I also—I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't think I have a good answer. Um, one thing that really—that uh, writing Thing Explainer, uh, the book where I was using a really constrained vocabulary, uh, drove home for me is that it's really hard to remember before you learn something what it was like to look at that thing. And I think this is part of what makes like writing about science hard is like once once something clicks in your head, it's really hard to go back and be like, what was it like before that clicked and figure out what things are going to be difficult for someone, you know, and what things are going to be easy. And part of what I the reason I did this constrained writing project of use, explaining things using only the thousand most common words was that it forced me to. Even though I think of this word like astronaut, everyone knows the word astronaut. I would use it constantly when I was writing. And this force gave me like an objective check to make me remember what that was like to like to think, OK, wait, maybe there are people who don't know the word astronaut. Let's you know, how would I explain it for them? How would I talk to them? But it's really hard. I don't I don't know how to how to do that. Like, that's why I, I don't know how to I don't know. I don't know how to teach uh, how to teach math, I guess. But one thing I think is really interesting and I don't really know what to make of, but I um, is that I think I feel like everybody I know who doesn't do math for a living or who didn't go into some math field has a really specific story about what derailed them from math in school. Like they were doing really well up until this one class where either like the, you know, there was like a, a really bad teacher or there was like a subject that they were like, this is where my brain doesn't do this, you know? And it's weird how many people have a story like that. And it sort of makes me wonder if, if it's not that there's sort of something weird about how we think about math and our ability to do it that's a little bit different from the way we think about, you know, other other skills that like cooking or whatever. Uh, in general, I think that we have a tendency to imbue certain subjects with an aura of complexity. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily harder. I don't think that um, writing a great novel is easier than doing math. 
it is easier for the people who write great novels, and it is harder for the people who learn esoteric mathematics and vice versa. But I, I think a lot in my own work um, about just like how do you demystify things that people think are going to be hard, right? How can you take something that scares them and make it easy? So like something I used to do in headlining was I would take a, a complex topic and change what the ask was instead of it being like the American healthcare system. It would be the American healthcare system explained in three charts mm-hmm. because like the American healthcare system seems big, but like three charts doesn't seem like that much. And so like trying to narrow it down. But I think a lot of life um, or certainly a lot of teaching is making the unmanageable seem manageable to people. Yeah. I think that people maybe think that it's like you get a light bulb that goes on and suddenly like you've reached enlightenment and you know how to do math all of a sudden because you've had the right like thing click in your head. And I think it's a lot more just it's a lot more like playing an instrument where although I I don't know how to play any instruments particularly well. So like I don't know if that's if it's quite the same. But like I think I think people underrate how much of the kind of basic skills of math are just having done it a whole bunch of times and then having it like eventually drilled into your head to where you don't have to think too hard about that part. You can move on to, you know, the next part. You don't have to think like, where is a G on the piano keyboard because you've gotten the muscle memory. And now you can start thinking about like, you know, more like higher level in higher level ways. And like building that up is, I feel like with any skill I try to learn it, I'm like, this basic step can't possibly be this hard for everyone else. Right. You know, like, how is it taking me this long to learn to like, just touch type without looking at the keyboard or like I still do not know know how to do that yeah well and like and then I think okay there must just be something wrong with how I think that this basic thing is hard and so I like to try to like share with people not just the you know here's a cool thing I learned how to do but like here's a thing that I still do in a really like amateur seeming way like when I'm doing um uh when I'm doing a calculation in seconds and it's a really big number of seconds and I want to like quickly divide it to convert to years so I can see like, is this, you know, a billion seconds? Is this like a year or a decade or whatever? I'll divide by, uh, I I think of that one song from uh, uh, Rent where I'll divide by 525,600 and then by 60. And that's still how I remember, like how I, how I convert from seconds to years is this like random mnemonic I learned forever ago. That's amazing. I feel like it's not anything more sophisticated than that. It's just learning a bunch of very simple steps enough that you can do them a lot. Can can we go back to Thing Explainer? I, I loved the constraint of that project so much. It was like such a beautiful idea, and I'm curious where it came from. Honestly, the truth is um, it was when I was playing that game Kerbal Space Program, uh, which is a game where you build rockets, and it's very kind of a simulation game. You stick rocket parts together. It makes it very easy to stick rocket parts together and press go. Um the rockets will almost always then explode, you know, before. But, like, y- you can then rewind video, and try again. Is it a PC game or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's at least uh, on PC and Mac and stuff. But you can, like, slowly build up from, like, I attached one rocket to one fuel tank and made it go and fly into the air and, you know, crash, you, to building up to, like, executing a full uh, moon mission. But there's so much trial and error. Uh, and I would name all of my spacecraft and... I would start off naming them really ambitious names, like this is going to be, you know, Apollo, the chariot of whatever, you know, this is an an eagle one and so on. But like after you watch them explode over and over and over, you start, uh, I started feeling like like the name, uh, the spacecraft were not living up to the name. And I started giving them more pejorative names and more, you know, I would just feel like, okay, this is the stupid flying tube, 
you know? And then I started having to like trying to one up all the previous names, uh, trying to come up with the most, the least space sounding names for these rockets that I could. And I finally settled on Upgoer. Uh, and I thought that was the, the, the worst name for a rocket I could think of. The, and I couldn't top that one. So I used that one for a while. And then that actually turned into a pretty good, uh, like, you know, I successfully landed on uh, one of the moons. But then I thought, you know, it'd be fun to try to go through a rocket and give all the parts really simple names. And then when I started trying to, trying to do that, I thought, oh, that'd be a cool chart. I'll do an actual Saturn V rocket and I'll call it the Upgoer Five. And I'll name all the parts, you know, here's the, the part where the fire comes out and here's the little people box where the people sit, you know. Um, and I found that then it was, it was really interesting trying to explain what each part did without using any technical vocabulary. And like, how do you even explain like what uh, liquid oxygen is? And, you know, you can say, okay, it's really cold, wet air, you know, um, but, but then how do you distinguish it from like, uh, you know, hydrogen? Um, and so a problem so that has start... faced so many of us. <laughs> yeah, well, and so it's like this is this is the part of air you need to breathe. You know, uh -huh. and I can say that, but without the other stuff in it. And that was like unexpectedly like a fun challenge, and also it meant that I had to actually learn what all the parts did. There were a bunch of parts where I sort of knew the name, but I didn't actually know what they did. And I had to go and look it up. Like the on the Saturn V, it has there's a little cone, the little uh, needle like thing on top which I think I had seen it was called like the LAB or launch abort system or launch escape system or something that, but I had never actually like looked up what's that for. It sort of looks like a lightning rod in the faraway pictures, but it's actually a little tiny rocket attached to the top with, with jets that point off to one side so they don't just go straight down into the crew cabin. And it's for if something goes wrong, that thing fires and yanks the capsule up away from what's probably an exploding rocket and carries it to safety. And like, I didn't, I didn't know about those. Like it's a, you know, basic space thing, but I had never learned what that was. And so it was a fun exercise trying to explain what all these things did because it then made me make sure that I really understood what they did. Yeah, that, that was a, what I was going to zoom in on there, which is, does the work of trying to break down concepts into component parts, like teach you that you actually didn't know what the concepts meant? That the too much was hiding in a in a hazy idea of of this idea, and let me maybe sharpen this with with an example from my world. So something that I uh, look at as an editor is that there's great journalism to be done whenever people have begun using a word that more is encoded in it than people actually know. So my favorite example of this is people in Washington are constantly talking about infrastructure. They need to do something about infrastructure. And if you ask people to define, like, what does infrastructure mean? What is included in it? What is a problem with it? Virtually none of the, the candidates, politicians, even a lot of the experts talking about it have a clear definition. Like, infrastructure is just, it is a word that when you say it, it makes you sound like you know the category of thing you are talking about, but it exists in an almost completely undefined wor world in, in, in most um, political conversation. And so, like, that's always for me, like, a great place for um, explainer work. Trying to do that for actual for actually like how things function, though, I have to imagine makes you realize that a lot of ambiguity is hiding in some words that give us the illusion of knowledge, but are actually hiding the knowledge we don't have. Yeah, I think um, it it's always interesting. You know, sometimes when I'll be researching something, I have to go and talk to someone who like I I'm, I'm tend to be solitary. Where I'll just like if I can solve something by reading a bazillion papers even if it takes me like way longer than it would to just call someone up and ask, um, I'll do the papers one. Um, but uh, occasionally I would, I would try to 
reach out to someone. And so I did a diagram of like all the organs in the human body. And I felt like I could explain pretty well, you know, what the lungs did and what the stomach did and, or, you know, these, uh, uh, and I got stuck on the liver and I eventually went to a friend who, who was a, a, a biologist and, and, and did, you know, um, human biology around and did a bunch of liver related stuff. And I asked her like, can you kind of, I, I've seen all these different things that I know the liver is involved in. But what connects them all? Like, why is that the organ that does all that stuff? And and so I ask, like, can you can you summarize like what function the liver has that ties these things together? Like, what it is that the liver does in general? And she looked at me for a little bit, looked thoughtful for a second, and then just said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> like, the liver does a bunch of a bunch of weird things, and then and then we kind of settled on a, an idea that. Like most of them involve breaking things into their component parts or sometimes combining those parts to make new things. But it was like very and then but no, it does some other stuff, too. And it, I realized there isn't really a like it, it seemed like there wasn't a single unifying thing, you know, about the liver that if you were trying to do, you can just you have the name and the name refers to this set of things that the liver does. But having a name for it makes it seem like they're all tied together in a more cohesive way than they are. I've been reading a bunch of books about sleep recently because mm -hmm. one of the things that happens when you don't get much sleep is that you decide to read about it instead of doing it. And it, it has a bit of that quality where I keep looking for what sleep is and what it mm -hmm. does. And there isn't an answer to that question. It's just, it's like everything. It, it, it seems to be that like sleep is simply a state of being exactly as complex as being awake and you can do as many things during it. But the idea that it has a purpose I don't know, just calling it something, right? Calling it sleep always made me think that sleep was one thing and you mm -hmm. could just define what it was doing for the body in one way. You were resting or – and it's been a little sobering to recognize like how much was lurking behind what seemed like a simple concept that I do um, sometimes as often as once a day. Yeah. One thing I really like is finding very simple questions that people don't seem to have an answer to that it seems like we should. And especially in physics, because in physics, people get really reductionist and like, you know, there will be this giant project to search for the Higgs boson. And it sort of makes you think, OK, all of the intermediate problems that are less abstract and less sophisticated than that in physics must have been solved already. But I love that there are a couple of like very basic questions in physics that that we really don't don't understand at all, like why lightning happens. <laughs> We don't know why lightning happens. Yeah, if you so if you look this up anywhere, you know uh, uh, what you'll see is like something. You know, the updrafts in a storm cause positive and negative charges to separate and build up on the top and bottom of the cloud. And then when those charges get high enough, the the you know the lightning will jump from the cloud to the ground or from the you know within the the parts of the cloud. So why do those charges separate? You know, why does why does an updraft make that happen? Like sideways winds don't. You know. Um, and why does it mostly happen in these really intense thunderstorms, but not as much in hurricanes? And you look at them and they'll say, well, it's sort of be because the the materials passing going past each other. It's sort of like when you rub a balloon on your hair, you know, and charge is transferred from one to the other. Except we don't actually have a theory for why charge is transferred from the hair to the balloon and not the other way around. Like that's it's sort of just empirically determined because it's like a, a weird emergent effect that we don't really, you know, I, I don't have a an explanation for it that's any more satisfying than just saying, yeah, that happens when you do that. And there are, there are like some very basic problems in like how sand flows, like predicting how fast sand will go through an hourglass 
based on like the shape of the sand grains and stuff is is a thing like we have almost no understanding of you know um uh why ice is slippery and why ice skates work is another one that why ice skates work is something we don't know so for a long time there was this really big uh the standard explanation was pressure melting like the ice the ice skate has a blade and that means that there's really high pressure under the blade and raising the pressure lowers the uh, uh it raises the melting point of water or lowers the melting point of water so water melts at a lower temperature but under an ice skate blade it it lowers that temperature by a few degrees and so the sort the idea was sort of that okay it's because the ice is near melting and the blade of the the skate it's like it it drops that melting point by three degrees, and so you get a thin layer of ice that melts. And there's a great review paper that said that it's sort of odd that for a good 50 years, no one really pointed out that you can skate when it's colder than three degrees below zero, <laughs> um, which suggests that yes. the pressure melting theory might have some problems. And this one, it, it's not true that we haven't figured this out, that we don't understand beyond that. Like we, there have been, and there, but there have been, there was a paper in like 2014 that was like really trying to nail down what's going on on ice that makes it slippery and how you get a layer of, um, you know, there's like an ice crystal, which is water molecules locked into a, into a grid, you know, into a lattice, a hexagonal, you know, uh, uh, this, this crystal lattice. And then at the edges, um, I sort of think of it, it's like uh, uh, the edges of a rug that's woven, how it gets frayed and softer. Um, the molecules at the edge have more like degrees of freedom, more ability to bounce around. And so you get a layer that's sort of water-like and it's easier to snap off individual ones and have them drift around as water molecules for a minute before like falling back into the lattice. And so you get a kind of a thin layer of water on ice, but like it's slippery even if you aren't pressing hard on it, you know? And it's because it, ice has a thin layer of water on the surface. And if the temperature gets cold enough, you don't really get that layer. So in really cold uh, weather, you, um, you know, ice will get less slippery. But the kind of dominant explanation about pressure melting is really completely wrong. Um, and it's easy to point out why it's wrong, but there isn't a lot riding on understanding why ice skates work. So it kind of languished, I guess. That's that's like just an amazing example. And it's a good bridge back to my derivative how-do uh, gimmick here in this interview, which is something I, I like about your work is it retains a sense of wonder. Um, even this conversation that you could kind of just tell you're somebody who looks at the world and like, oh, that's interesting. Like, how, how, how do you retain a sense of wonder? Man, there are a lot. I feel like there are a lot of questions where I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Um, I think a lot of these questions, the answer is I'm not really sure because I can't compare to how someone else looks at things, you know? One thing that I sort of get the sense is important is not being embarrassed about not knowing things. And that's something that I really struggle with. And definitely, especially when I was, you know, studying physics and I was under and I felt, you know, insecure and I was under a lot of pressure to look like I knew what I was doing and what I was talking about. Um, in an academic context, like, you know, I would be in a class where I had no idea what any, what, I completely lost the thread and I didn't know what the professor was talking about. I didn't understand the equations on the board. And it seemed like everyone else in the room was listening intently and all understood. And I was like, okay, I've messed up. I can't reveal that I've messed up. I'm going to try desperately to catch up, but I'm not going to ask a question. And it took me a long time to realize how often when I was feeling that way, 
I was not the only one in the room. Other people didn't understand either. Everyone was just trying to pretend they knew what they were doing. You know, like there was some basic thing that, that you know, maybe I hadn't been paying attention, but also maybe like it wasn't explained that clearly or we were, you know, you, the professor assumed we all knew something and we didn't. But it makes you really reluctant to ask questions about about things for fear that there's a simple answer that you will like look like you don't know what you're talking about because you didn't know it. And I've, I think I, I feel like I, I spend a lot of time trying to get over that and not let that insecurity get in the way of, of trying to find out something cool. Um, my New Year's resolution a couple of years ago was when someone used a word and I didn't know what it meant to ask them what that word meant. And man, that's hard. I had such, it, it, it shouldn't be like, I'm like, I know I'm an educated person. I'm, you know, I've, I've written several books, you know, I like, I, I know, I know words. I know a good amount of words. But you but only use a thousand words in those books. So. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that's true. <laughs> well, but it, it, I, it's really hard to admit, like, is this a word everyone else knows? And I'm going to look ridiculous for like, it's like when you turn as a, when you learn, you've been mispronouncing something this whole time. It's really embarrassing. And so I try to get get over that. But it's really hard, even though it shouldn't be. One of the things that I try to do as a result of that to maybe help other people is it's easy to react to that insecurity by kind of trying to find evidence that other people don't know what they're talking about, because that makes you feel better. And so I think it can sort of turn from being insecure about not knowing something to being extra pedantic about pointing out mistakes other people have made. Um, this definitely seems to happen in, you know, like the the physics classes I came from. You'd get very fixated on kind of things like the difference between weight and mass, partly because it was important, but partly because you could use it to show, oh, this person is being uh, uh, careless with their terminology and I am more, you know, knowledgeable about this. And so I think that a lot of that urge to correct people comes from that. And so I try to fight that as much as I possibly can because I think you get a vicious cycle where everyone's just trying to prove themselves by correcting other people and pointing out things that other people don't understand. Um, and it makes everyone lock up and no one wants to share things they don't know and no one wants to admit not knowing things. And then no one wants to share cool things they learn because they assume everyone else already knows this thing. And so... I don't know if that's the key to, you know, for a person who wants to feel more wonder. I don't really know how to even think about that question, I guess. But I definitely encourage everyone to basically be be less pedantic and less condescending and worried less about that kind of thing and just try to find out what people are talking about and what they know and share stuff you know um, and just be be chill about it. I don't know. I love that as a, as a piece of life advice to be, to live less in the space of what you know than what others know, like I think is a good yeah is a good way to to operate. Or at least you know, like I, I I'm I'm constantly telling people cool things that I learned. You know, I don't I don't know if I'm the you know the like it, it, this makes it sound like I'm you know uh, always listen to people and always you know what like like I don't know if I'm great about that, but I try to examine my own reasons for correcting people or being pedantic about things um, and see whether it's coming from mm -hmm. really wanting to help them in some way or just establish something about myself. All right, let's, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. I want to go to a question that I know you do know the answer to, which is how to dig a hole. Um, it depends on how much you want to dig up. Uh, 
because you, you can just use your hands. You can shovel dirt that way. Um, it goes faster if you use a shovel. And I don't know, I've dug a lot of holes in, in the beach, you know, playing in the backyard. Uh, and so the, the basic steps of digging a hole uh, seem pretty straightforward. But what if you want to dig a big hole? Well, what I started wondering about was if there's buried treasure somewhere, obviously, you know, when I was a little kid digging in the backyard, I would be like, okay, it's, we want to dig this up. But digging takes a lot of time. And buried treasure is only, you know, it's worth a certain amount. But so I figured there must be a hole large enough where it wouldn't be worth it to dig to get the treasure out. And so I started trying to calculate for a given value of treasure and a given uncertainty about where it was, at what point would you be better off not digging up the treasure and just going and getting a job doing landscaping or something and digging for an hourly pay? And you'd make more money than you would from digging up the treasure, which is not not even necessarily an abstract thing. Uh, there's that uh, that island in Nova Scotia where people have been convinced that there's treasure for like quite a few centuries now. And it's like fourth hand uh, evidence where it, like someone went there in the 1700s looking for treasure, we think, because we've seen evidence that someone was there looking for treasure, maybe. And like, but then someone's found that evidence and they came back and were like, I did find clues that someone else thought there was treasure there. Uh, and other people are like, oh, well, maybe maybe it's this thing. We should go look for it. And we've got like a chain of now like like many generations of people who are each looking for evidence of the previous generation's uh, uh, digging. And what's funny is like there's basically no plausible amount of treasure that could be there that would be worth the amount of effort that has now been expended trying to dig it up. Um, but I guess it's the the sunk cost thing. Like, but what if you're the one who finds it now? You could go and do that last little bit of digging. You seem like somebody who's able to, you develop the premises of a question and then you really follow them. Like you're really able to live within like the the structure to see where it goes. It, like it's almost a little bit like philosophers, how they do thought experiments, that there, there's something about being willing to take a question seriously, not like imply the constraints of sort of normal life, but like what is the question actually asking that is sort of an interesting power and mode of inquiry? Yeah, I think, I think sometimes I'll... I'll take a simple question and then and then keep exploring it and find that in order to answer it, I have to answer a bunch of other questions and they lead me down research rabbit holes, you know, or, or uh, I've created a new problem now and that new problem is even more interesting. So I'm going to try to solve that. Uh, sometimes, though, the answer is really easy, but then it raises new questions once I've gotten to it. Um, one example was someone wrote in to me asking, uh, there's some uh, uh, analogy people use where they're like, it's like funneling Niagara Falls through a drinking straw. And they said, well, could you actually do that? What would it be like? And this is a really straightforward physics calculation. Like, you, you know, it's, you just look at the volume of the flow over Niagara Falls and the cross-sectional area of a straw, and you do a little division, and the answer tells you the water would have to be flowing at, like, a significant fraction of the speed of light. Um, so you can't do that. Um, and if you did, if you did find a way to get the water to go through that fast, it would destroy everything in the area. But... What was interesting was I was thinking about, okay, if you do take the, all the water from Niagara Falls and, and funnel it through this straw, um, I had heard this urban legend, you know, it turned out to be an urban legend that they turn off Niagara Falls at night, which turns out not to be true, uh, in part because there is a treaty between the U.S. and Canada requiring that you leave, you can only take a certain amount of water from the falls. Um, they have to leave, you know, X uh, gallons or cubic meters per, per second or per year going over um, to preserve the natural beauty of this landmark. And what 
was interesting about that, though, because I was so I thought, okay, well, you can't take the water from Niagara Falls uh, and put it through a straw because you will be in violation of this treaty. But then I'm reading about the treaty, and it and it mentioned that the U.S. and Canada have each designate each designated representative under this treaty to confirm that the correct amount of water is flowing over Niagara Falls. And like, I started thinking, like, wait a minute. So who are these people? Like, do they go out and just like look at the falls? You know, I assume there's like you know equipment that's monitoring it, and they're but like, what is? Are they? It seemed like a kind of international body that was with a very specific job. And so in my head, I, I sort of started picturing them as, as like a Mulder and Scully situation. They're these investigators in this special waterfall unit. And I just wanted to find out like, hey, what, what are their current name? Who, who is in that position right now? Like it's this big international treaty has established this position and the U.S. and Canada have appointed someone. Who are they? And like six hours later, <laughs> I've downloaded like the org charts for every organization that's involved in managing each of the Great Lakes separately and the Great Lakes collectively. And like they 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 have like annual and monthly meetings and, you know, they, they're involved in all these different industries and they have lots of overlap between the groups. And like I finally found out who the, you know, designated representatives were. And it was like someone from Environment Canada and like a, a, uh, someone in the uh, NOAA, you know, uh, some some high position in NOAA in the U.S. Um, and and I actually got to like learn, okay, here are who the waterfall police are. Um, and here is the procedure they follow. And here's how this works. And, and it's weird and roundabout in a way that like things that it seems like, oh yeah, the U.S. and Canada agreed to to leave Niagara Falls alone so people could come enjoy it, which sounds kind of simple, but then the implementation ends up being really weird and complicated. Who who are they? Like, what were what what job do you need to hold to get appointed um, waterfall police? I, I I forget offhand. The U.S. one uh, was I think had a it, it was someone with NOAA, the National Geographic and Atmospheric Administration. I think they had a name that was like you know brigadier general or some some lieutenant or some, you know one of the positions yeah. uh, with a with a kind of military title. They like because NOAA has its uh, wings of, you know, the, the aircraft and, and all that stuff. Um, and the Canadian official was uh, uh, someone from Environment Canada, sort of the Canadian equivalent of like the EPA. Um, and so I think they have day jobs. Uh, I don't think it's their full time, full time thing going and staring sternly at Niagara Falls from either side. And, you know, so that there are there will be bodies that they report to and they'll, you know, uh, uh, look this look, you know, look at. So-and-so has complained that Canada is taking too much water and that'll go into the treaty, which then forces the governments to then return to the table. No one wants to be negotiating over this topic, I assume. So like, you know, then they'll, the respective governments would try to figure out who's causing this problem and try to fix it. But I just remember thinking like this seemed like a very simple question. Like I want to write this article. I want to mention who the current waterfall police are. And it seemed like a thing that Ordinary people on the internet didn't go and check a lot. And so it's like like when you get in an elevator and they're like elevator inspection certificate available in the main office. Like I've never gone to knock on the door at the main office and just be like, hey, it said here the certificate's available and I figured I should check, you know, because I'm going to ride in this elevator. Um, do you have it? And I've always wondered like, like they probably do have it because, you know, elevator, there are probably elevator inspectors, you know, who who on a, some schedule come and, and check that, you know. But I wonder how often people do come and ask them for it who are not professional, you know, elevator inspectors. It's funny. You saying that just makes me realize that not only have I never done that, but I've never done that despite having some truly terrible elevator experiences. The, oh, the, really? The, yeah, that it's there and you just don't even think about the recourse as a real thing for you. It just begins to, to fade into the background. I don't know. I feel like a lot of life is like that where you just begin to 
you begin to stop seeing the purpose of the things around you if you see them enough. Um, let me ask you uh, something which I'm trying to figure out how to ask in a way that is not going to feel like one of these questions that is unanswerable. But the thing that I have loved about your work for years is that there's like this this kind of strange creativity to it, um, and sometimes in a very big way, like your uh, three thousand plus frame time series, um, or some of the like the tremendous maps you've done, both of the internet and then of just like much bigger uh, worlds. How does one let themselves be creative? Like, how do you spark creativity? With some of the really large comics I did, um, I, I when I first started out, I did all my charts on paper. And then I would scan them in and then process them on the computer. And I would use a tablet, you know, to edit them and everything. But I was still kind of limited by the available paper, where if I want to do a really big chart, I had to do it on a whole bunch of sheets of paper that I would, like, stitch together. And it was, like, really cumbersome. And if I if I used big sheets of paper, it was easier to scan. But then if I messed something, if I messed something up, I had to figure out, like, do I get another piece of paper and, like, put it over it or, you know, try to white things out or, like, digitally here's a, you know, here's a fix for it on another sheet of paper and I'm going to scan that. Like it was just, you know, a huge hassle. And I, and then when I finally started doing like first drafts of things directly onto the tablet, I was like, oh, hey, this process of stitching things together is much easier now. I wonder how big I could make something. (laughs) (laughs) And then shortly after that did a comic click and drag, which it was sort of based on the, the fun of if you've, I don't know if you've ever zoomed in on like Google Maps mm-hmm. and you find like, oh, here's my house and here's this road leading away from my house. I'm going to like try to, or like here's a river. Hey, this river must flow to the ocean, right? I'm going to like try following it to the ocean by clicking and dragging and not zooming out because that's cheating, you know? Um, and I feel like I'd done that and I'd seen other people doing that. And I was thinking like, oh, it'd be fun to make a map that you explore that way, but you aren't allowed to zoom out. You just get to explore around. Um, and my goal was to make this scene that people would explore big enough that their hands would get tired of clicking before they found uh, everything in it or before they got to the edge. And it ended up being one of my favorite things I've ever made. How much time did that take you to make? It was a while. I will, I will, you know, I have my my update schedule, but then I'll, I'll also have projects that I'll work on over time, you know, for weeks or months or whatever, uh, uh, puttering away at them or working at them, non- working on them nonstop and then only pausing to do, you know, my regular comics. Most days, do you have a structure in between the um, regular comic schedule and then the book you're working on or the big project you're working on? Like, are your days pretty structured or do they kind of just change depending on the project mix? I'd say they, I'd say they change depending on the project mix. One of the things that, uh, I'm getting at a little bit in the the creativity question is your work is very idea oriented. Kind of everything, both an individual comic is one idea, but then these bigger projects you do are often based on idea. Like, can I create something big enough that people will drag around it and never be able to see the whole scene? Or can I um, explain complex things in the thousand most common words? Or can I, you know, give people physics physics oriented, unusual how-to answers? When you're coming up with the ideas, like how how do you decide if something you've thought is worth following in that way? Like the the answer you've given on a couple of these is like, I thought like maybe I'd try to make something really big and see how big I can make it. Or I named a video game Rocket the Upgoer and that led to a best-selling book. Like what <laughs> what is the thing in your head that's like, hey, there's actually something there? I don't know. I think um, with the examples we've mentioned here, you know, I, I liked the idea of making a really big mural, you know, that people would explore. But it wasn't just like, I wonder how big I can make something. You know, I'm not I'm not sitting there being like, 
I wonder if I can break the world record for the largest castle built of, you know, soup cans. Like I could, but I don't really care. Um, I don't know where I'd get all the soup. I don't, you know, but um, with when I, the reason that I really liked this comic was that I've always really liked stories that kind of start small and then the characters, you know, discover that, or like, you know, you as the reader discover that the world is a lot bigger than you thought it was. That's something that's always really appealed to me. And so I like the idea of having a comic panel that would, you know, look like a normal panel. And then, you know, when I was playing video games, uh, especially the, you know, back in the day when they tended to have to be pretty clumsy about putting in the bounds of the world, like you'd play a racing game and you're driving on the highway, but like if you veer off and go between the buildings, you'll just like hit an invisible wall or you'll hit a hedge that the car should be able to like drive right through, <laughs> but it stops you. Yes. Um, you know, video game characters like can't climb over anything in the, in those old games. Um and that would always really frustrate me because I'm like, well, now I just want to know what's beyond here um, because I can see that they filled in enough, you know, that it implies that it keeps going. And I would always find that really frustrating um, because I really like when there's a story where you're like, you think you're limited to this area and then, oh, hey, you can actually step over this. And it's not a racing game at all. It's like an open world exploration game. And I think a lot of my favorite uh, uh, stories will kind of follow that pattern and that was part of what appealed to me about doing this big mural was that trying to capture that excitement of discovering that you could explore. You know, I really liked uh, uh, I'm, you know, a big fan of Terry Pratchett mm -hmm. and I really liked his, you know, I've, 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 I love Discworld and all those and 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 some of his other books. But then but he did the Bromeliad trilogy, which was a series of books that are kind of more more, I think, aimed at a younger audience. But the structure of the books was a steadily expanding um, world where it starts off with these little gnomes living in this like very small, uh, you know, riverbank or whatever. And they have some problem that leads them to like leave there. And then their world expands to like now they live in a shopping mall and the people in the shopping mall think that the mall is the whole world and it's huge and it's new. But then like the mall is going to be demolished. So they have to move out further and be like, oh, there's more of the world than our riverbank and the shopping mall next to it, you know. And what I what I really enjoy is that it the story continues expanding the scope beyond what you would expect from a children's story, you know? And at every step, the characters think that they understand, you know, okay, I understand the world now. I think I've worked this out. And then it's like you... Uh, uh, and then you, like, uh, push through the trees or something, and suddenly you're, like, looking off a cliff, and there's an ocean, and you never knew that there was an ocean there. Um, and and I and I, I really like that, um, that... And that's uh, so that's something that when I have an idea that kind of, you know, I'm messing with something small and then realize, hey, this connects up to a big, weird thing. That's like always kind of exciting. Yeah. That's, uh, so one, I, I love Terry Pratchett. I've read every Discworld and I didn't know about that trilogy. So mm -hmm. now I want to check it out. Yeah. Um, that sounds in some ways like a big influence on the story you told in time. Yeah. I also have, I guess, a little bit like I don't I don't since I don't do like narratives. I have a, like a little bit of a pet peeve that when a story like dangles a mystery in front of me, mm -hmm. I'm someone who I'm a sucker for that, you know, because it's so easy to throw out a few hints that there's something bigger in this going on in this world that you can fit together if you watch it. Um, and I feel like I get I got burned by that over and over by stories that would throw something out there and not really have a plan for how to follow through figured, OK, well, if we get made for a second season, we'll have to start explaining this, uh, you know, and that's why like I, I was I was really wary of Lost. Correctly because so. I, because I know that <laughs> because I know that it's a lot easier to throw out hints than to actually have a, a backstory. 
so when I did time, I, I wanted to explore a bunch of different things and show, you know, try doing this thing that was an average between a movie and a comic strip. Uh-huh. Instead of updating a movie as a frames that update 24 times a second and a comic strip will update like a few times a week. And I did something kind of in between where it was a frame that updated every hour. Um, but the, I wanted to tell a story in there. And my one my one criteria was I had to know um, where the story was going to go by the end. Um, you know, I had I had the whole thing planned out. But I started with like something very small and mundane of, you know, people building these sandcastles and then had the scope expand outward. Uh, I can kind of imagine knowing your work, how you made the kind of scope expand outward. But how did you think about building out the story? I mean, you won a Hugo Award for that. And that, to my knowledge, is your only narrative project, um, although I could be wrong about that. Yeah, pretty much. How, how did you did you write it down beforehand just like as a story and then think about how to do it as a comic? I mean, what was your process on that? Yeah, I. I I think I was sort of thinking about, um, like, I'll read about uh, uh, weird geologic periods in Earth's history or weird, like, places that people could live. You know, like, I feel like there have been stories that take, like, what if you lived right before the dinosaur, you know, meteor Mm -hmm. arrived? What would you think looking at it? Would you figure out what was going on? You know, um, if you're inside the story, you don't know... You don't know that you're in the part of the world where this, uh, uh, like, if, if you live in the Cretaceous right after the the meteor has hit and devastated everything, um, but you don't know what meteors are, you don't know about that, um, that'd be pretty weird. You'd have a lot of a lot of questions to answer, and trying to think how you would work your way through that is kind of interesting because then, um, like, it's to think about about stripping away knowing what you know. And then think, how would I do the detective work to figure this out if I were there? And so I took one of those weird settings and had characters uh, who lived in it slowly trying to figure out what's going on with their world. Yeah, I thought that was a, um, I mean, it's funny, that's actually the story when I was like thinking back through your work that gave me the wonder question because like that was a story all about wonder in a way. Like they, like there's just this constant like, well, maybe there is more, right? This This unwillingness to just say that what is in front of you is what's there. Um, the, the geologic question there was really cool to me. Uh, I had N.K. Jemison on the show a while back, who's this be- amazing, amazing uh, sci-fi and fantasy writer. And she was sort of explaining to me how she does world building and how she does world building seminars. She says, that, you know, you just sort of begin with the world and you twist something. And then the question is, like, what does that twisting do throughout the entire model of the world? And it was, like, such an interesting way to think about our world, right? Just, like, what would it be if, like, one thing were different and how much would that change? Mm-hmm. But it forces you to have a pretty systematic model of the world you actually have, it turns out. Yeah. Um, and you can really get get sucked into that world building. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's definitely, especially if, if you kind of like architecting that kind of thing, you can get sucked into the geology and like never get around to the story at all because you're having so much fun figuring out uh, the, the setting. I'm going to stop us right there for a quick break and then we'll be right back. Something that's all that has struck me about the way you've kept XKCD uh, together is that when when did you launch? Like when when did the first XKCD comic go up? Uh, it was in the fall of two thousand five. So the internet has been through many generations since then, right? Mm-hmm. Things went social media and viral and YouTube and most publications of various sorts, be they creators or bigger groups like mine have tried to sort of surf those different waves and things have gotten really easy to share on Facebook or, you know, like now, like do something on Twitch or whatever it might be. 
And you really held to kind of one vision and then let the things travel in their own way and kind of stayed on the open web. I'd just be curious to hear a bit about like that decision making, right? Because a lot of people, you know, decided, okay, well, I will like I'll step in in the new place and mm-hmm. kept chasing these waves. Whereas it seems to me you've kept things pretty steady and just focused on the product and trusted in that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, this is one of those questions about like what I did worked, you know, like for me. And and it's sort of like if you ask someone who's successful at something, um, my favorite example is like if you ask someone who won the lottery, what the trick, you know, how they how they stuck with it and how did they keep buying lottery tickets in order to, um, you know, how did they know that it was going to work out in the end? You know, and and they didn't. You just you're picking out the one lottery winner who it worked for. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's that I did something right or if it was sort of in the right place at the right time with uh, and didn't, you know, and it would have worked if I had tried to, you know, jump on every new platform and do everything or or if it was actually a good way of doing it, you know? I don't mean it so much in the yeah. question of it was like the best possible strategy. Yeah, I, yeah. More, I more just mean that it's always seemed to me that, well, a lot of other people got lured, right? It, it kind of seems like you should chase a thing. Was that just, it was just not seductive to you? It's not something you decided not to do. It just never really occurred. I don't know. I do think there's a lot of stuff that people, like there was a lot of stuff that when I set up a website that it was like, that that it was just assumed that you would do like that you would have because other people had it. Um, And I think comments are a really interesting Uh example of that where like at some point, and I do not remember why, but at some point in the mid 2000s, I like looked up what the, you know, consensus dictionary definition of blog was. And it was like a, a website with a feed that where there are short posts updated periodically, you know, or longer posts updated less often um, as an ongoing thing that you can subscribe to with comments uh, that people can leave under each post. And I was like, how did comments on the site where the blog is get hooked into the definition of a blog? Mm -hmm. Because they don't actually seem like they would need to. Like, it's weird that every blog is presumed to have comments. And I wonder why that is. And and sort of my suspicion was always that it was because, like, the default, uh, you know, some some default software package made it easy to add comments. And then you were like, well, why not? You know, and that it let you see people talking and interacting. And then you, like, come up with a reason why that's good, you know. And I think, I, I don't know, I always try to be really conscious of, like, just because I can do something doesn't mean that it's a good idea. <laughs> especially when I was telling jokes or doing comics, because often I would do a comic and think, oh, people might misunderstand this. It's okay. I'll do a post next to the comic explaining why the joke is like it is, you know? (laughs) And that's an impulse that I think any comedian, like once you start trying to explain the joke you just made, like you've already like lost, you've already failed at that. And and so you just need to like make the joke better next time or something. And so I tried to, to realize that just because I could talk to people through, you know, every different outlet or you know, host people uh, uh, have posting comments on my website or, you know, have a community on here or there. Like, I should have a r- reason for doing that. And and um, and I was I've just sort of was sort of conservative about about buying those. And one of the cool things that seems to have happened amidst that is that a huge amount of like of their own communities around XKCD have sprung up. And and more than that, there's been a lot of kind of beautiful, weird, interesting, like offline manifestations of it. 
Um, for, for people who don't know the story, could you talk a bit about the coordinates project you did, the, the comic, and then actually appearing there in the park on that day at that time and kind of what that was like? Yeah. Um, at one point, I did a comic um, that where I put a set of GPS coordinates and a time in it, and it was a character who was told these in a dream. Um, and then in the comic, they showed up and no one was there. And it was about how, a lesson about how dreams don't make... Uh, uh, aren't necessarily real. But I used real coordinates uh, for a place and a time that was like six months in the future. And I wasn't really sure what would happen. Um, honestly, I remember thinking like, I wonder if a bunch of people will show up because the coordinates are reachable. At the very least, people who live in the neighborhood might, you know, oh, that's down the street for me. I should put it on my calendar and go see what's there. Um, and I remember thinking that I didn't think that, I thought that probably wouldn't happen because if it was that easy to throw a giant impromptu event with no organizers or whatever, like wouldn't, I don't I, I remember thinking like, well, if it's, if you could put coordinates in there and get people to go somewhere like that, like wouldn't Garfield have done that at some point for some reason, you know, like I, I, I hadn't seen someone no, Garfield do that. Garfield is very lazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, get, get them to come to you, I guess. <laughs> but, um, I was like, oh, this will be interesting to see what happens. I, I was a little bit surprised when like I posted that and then like, Within like a matter of hours, people were posting uh, screenshots of their plane tickets they had bought. And I was like, oh, oh wow. Uh oh, okay, this is going to be interesting. And when the day arrived, uh, uh, some very large number of, you know, thousands, thousands of people, you know, the, the park filled to capacity and spilled over into nearby parks of just enthusiastic people who were there for no particular reason except they had looked up where some coordinates were on the internet um and it was it was just the coolest and nicest group of people i've ever been uh, been around it, they were just, everyone was just excited to be there and no one ha had any expectation and i was sort of i didn't actually live in uh, even lived in massachusetts at the time but i i, I thought i was going to be moving up there by then so i came to uh, it came to this event and I put up some giant panels of the comic and let people fill in their own new ending since apparently having dreams about a coordinate uh, does make people show up after all. And uh, and it was just like a, day, a sort of day-long party. People went to a nearby park and had brought trebuchets for some reason and were like launching stuff uh, with them. In, in my um, respect for your news resolution, what is a trebuchet? Uh, it's like a giant catapult. Oh, cool. It's a catapult. <laughs> It's a catapult that if you call it a catapult, people who know about catapults will be like, it's not a catapult, it's a trebuchet. <laughs> it's like, it's not weight, it's mass. Um, but yeah, giant catapult. And what what do you think it is about the communities or the audience's relationship with you that they trusted you would be there? I don't know. I'm not sure if they did. I. <laughs> it might have just been. I think uh, it was, they were going to see who was there, you know, like what what happened there. But like, I was there, but like I didn't make it a giant party, you know. Like that was all of all of them. People brought like all kinds of snacks, like baked goods, games. There were people who were doing like juggling. People, every, everyone who had a weird thing that would be fun to bring to a big party in a park. Um, and I feel like it would have been that party, uh, uh, kind of regardless. Uh, I was just uh, there to just kind of briefly be a focal point right when the seconds hit, you know, because I, I had given a time down to the second. Um, but it was really cool to see, like, how people organized. And, like, 
everyone, like people stayed and like people cleaned up all evening, you know, like they, they were really considerate about it, which I was, I was worried about because I really didn't want to like overwhelm the local like park officials mm -hmm. and, you know, ruin this place. So I was nervous about that, but it just seems like the, the, the kind of people who show up to that are just really cool people. <laughs> Very nice. I could be wrong and you could be just a raging ego monster in your private life, but like given what you've built and the audience for your comics and your books, like how do you not let it all go to your head? Oh man, I don't know. I I think the world in general and the internet and science in particular don't seem like they're short on examples of people who got told they were really smart and then let it get to them. And then they started telling everyone their opinions on everything and kind of ignoring whether those opinions were bad or hurting people or um, in an area that they knew nothing about but was really consequential if they weighed in on. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I just kind of resolved early on I, that to not think that all of my ideas were good, I guess, um, just just because I feel like I've seen every now and then. And that's part of the thing with, with social media, that it lets you, when you get mad about something, immediately express it. And I think that um, I've tried to resist giving myself that option when I can, because I think you sort of daily see that go wrong as someone picks a fight with someone and then gets way too deep into it and then says a whole bunch of things they regret, you know. Uh, no, not in my line of work. Regret. Never yeah, that happens. No, no. Never would that happen. <laughs> so generally, people don't get very angry online about no. opinions on the stuff you write about. It no. Sounds like, yeah. Um, it, it is funny to me that uh, I'm sure that you hear this a lot, but you're, I was an early blogger. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how I got into journalism. Oh, yeah, yeah. And for years I had over my desk, um, you know, come to sleep. Uh, I can't because somebody's wrong on the internet. Mm -hmm. If I leave, they'll just keep being wrong. <clears throat> and I, I felt for a long time like I lived by that. And it's only been the past couple of years where I'm like, you know, maybe just telling people they're wrong on the internet actually isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> And there's really no way to resolve that fight. And you have to somehow build some other kind of relationship to get people to listen to you, which is not well, in any way a commentary on the comic. No, just... it's it's funny, though, that I kind of drew that comic as a reminder to myself that I should maybe get some sleep. Um, <laughs> it had the opposite yeah, moral that, a lot of that's us took what from I was, it. I was thinking that, like, especially because the, the worst thing um, is... Like, if you do comics and someone pulls out your own comic to make a point against you, uh -huh. that feels really like you're like, oh, man, I walked into that one. Like, I just I just set that up and 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 teed that up for someone. And 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 now I there's nothing I could say to that. And I drew this comic so that, like, if I get really mad on the Internet, someone can be like, oh, wow, it sounds like you're really uh, I guess someone's wrong on the Internet, huh? And you just can't <laughs> and can't let it go. And I'm like, so like I'm it made to make it so that I can't. Um, spend too much time yelling at someone on the internet before uh, someone will then quote my own comic at me. I love that. That's so that's so interesting to hear because I, I just always took that as, um, not that you were telling me to do the opposite, but I, I think, and I'm probably not the only one, I'm like, yeah, like that is my moral life. Like people are wrong on the internet and I'm going to correct them. And it took well, a long I, time to I think, uh, like put that down as, a, yeah. as an operating I, approach to politics. Well, and like, it doesn't mean that sometimes people are wrong and you should tell them that, you know, like, but... Um, and I think it's like such an attractive impulse. Um, and I and I think I like to I, I try to remind myself that it is not in itself a, a duty that calls you, you know, like that it's it's a thing that you might feel compelled to do. But 
you should think about whether maybe you should go to bed. Well, for, for me, it was eventually, not that you're asking for my therapy session, but it was recognizing that if what somebody thinks you're doing is telling them they're wrong, they will never mm -hmm. believe they were wrong. Like yeah. there might be ways to change people's minds, but they're hard. Yeah. <laughs> and they, uh, I feel like they, they require you to somehow convey to the person you think they're in some fundamental way right. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like maybe this is another part you could rethink a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think one one general rule I found, you know, I've heard people when you're talking about how to talk about a technical subject to a non-technical audience. One of the big lessons for like from doing Thing Explainer and from trying to write about stuff is like, I, I just I feel like you can never go wrong assuming that people are really smart and also don't don't have context for what you're talking about. Like I've heard people I've heard the rule of thumb that like if you're talking to someone in a language that's not their first language and they're not totally fluent in that you should assume that they understand about half of what they appear to understand. Oh, that's great. Um and I sort of think that probably holds true for a lot of uh a lot of stuff like talking about uh science if you're a scientist. And and I think that people can go wrong by like when they sort of start to realize, "Oh, hey, people don't understand the stuff I thought they understood." to think, oh, people just aren't bright enough to get this. You know, like people, people in general are are just not smart. And like, and that seems like profoundly like unproductive and and also just ridiculous. Like when someone says like, oh yeah, people are stupid. You know, what the, it's like people are exactly average. <laughs> like by definition, what you, you know, what you're saying there is I'm much smarter than these people. So I try to remember that like people don't have the context I think they do even when they're pretending that they do. And also that people are like, people are really smart in general. Like if they aren't understanding something, it's probably because they don't have the same context and that I need to figure out like w what's missing here. Um, and not that I need to make this simpler so their little brains can understand the ideas. You know, like because nobody, no matter what they know or or what their background is or what technical, you know, or non-technical education they have or experience they have, nobody likes being condescended to and everybody can tell when you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Everybody can pick that up. You know, like even if they don't understand what you're talking about, they can tell if you think they're that they aren't smart and no one likes that. And so that's that's a big thing I try to do is like remind people like to kind of assume the audience is smart and try to not talk down to them. But also try to like give context for things. Um, and that's a really tough, you know, tough balance. But I think recognizing when you're condescending to someone and cutting that out is is key. Yeah, this is the thing. Like this like you've yeah. just been talking through I feel like the founding like one of my founding uh like missions in my own work. Uh there's a, a CBS news correspondent for a long time a guy named Eric Severide and in his sign off um essay on CBS like this is in the 70s or something he said, you know, in my career I have tried to never underestimate the audience's intelligence nor overestimate their knowledge. Um, and I've, I've like in in Vox's founding documents, like if you join, if you work at Vox, like you have to read a document that has this in it, that like it is one of our like um, rules of thumb that like that is how we should write at our best. You know, like you should never, should never believe the audience is any less intelligent um, than the smartest person you know, but also that they don't um, maybe have the information you have on something. And it's, I think it's a it's a great mistake we make um, assuming that if somebody doesn't have the information you have, that just means they're dumber. Um, it just means they don't have the information. They might be a lot smarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one one thing that I do try to do that I think helps helps with this a little bit um, is when I've learned something really cool. Um, you know, when I have something I want to explain, I talk about 
I try to talk about what I'm excited about about mm -hmm. it. Uh, rather than here's what you need to know about this, yeah. you know? Um, but like maybe I'm talking about the parts that I think they need to know, but like figure out why it is that I think it's important and I'm sharing it, like, and I'm excited to see if you think so too. Um, because usually that is what I'm trying to do, you know, like a, a level, like I'm I'm writing about this uh, science thing I researched because I think it's really cool. And, and I'm thinking of, man, if I could go back in time and, and, Give, tell myself about this. How would I do it? Um, if I wanted to, like, I just did a whole bunch of research and now I can go back and like save myself that time by giving the, this executive summary. Like, how would I, how would I, what would I pare it down to? Um, and, and I guess that's sort of how I think about it uh, when I'm trying to, trying to write up something. I love that. And I think that's probably good closing thoughts. So let me yeah. ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that you've loved that you would recommend to others? So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with kind of a weird uh, deep cut in the sense of um, it's definitely the oldest book I've ever read, and it makes it sound like I read a lot of historical things, but um, this is just something I stumbled on when I was going through a, a like a book database. Um, but there was this book published in 1590, which was the Natural and Moral History of the Indies. Uh, it was by a Spanish priest living in Peru. And I stumbled on this when I was just looking for, it was published recently in, uh, you know, it was originally in Spanish and a uh, translation was published uh, uh, in the last couple of decades by uh, Duke University, um, uh, some scholars there. I've never read a book quite like this. So there was this priest, um, uh, Jose de Acosta, who was in Peru and trying to write a guide to the Americas for the people back home, uh, you know, in Europe. And the the second half of the book is kind of about the, the it's the moral history and it's about the the people who live there and how moral they are and stuff and it's basically what you'd expect from a religious figure writing about the um, the Americas from in the you know 16th century but the first half is him trying to explain all of the natural world of the Americas and how it got to be like it is and what we can what we understand about it um but starting from an extremely basic level from a modern point of view, where like one of the early chapters is about the question of whether space is above everywhere or just Europe. And and he says like, and he says like now, now that we're over here in the new world, we've, you know, I can, of course we, we know space is above everywhere, but like, here's why we should, you know, we, we basically, we should have known that already. Like, here's how, how people figure that out and why we knew that. And then he goes through and What's really interesting is like he's working off of Aristotle. He gets lots of stuff wrong, but he was really good at figuring out science stuff um, from just like observations. So he like figured out the the existence of the the Bering Strait land bridge in 1590 before any year, you know, like hundreds of years before any, any European had been anywhere near there by looking at all the animals there and being like, huh, these animals seem like they're probably, you know, some of them are the same as the ones we got back home or they're, you know, related and there are people here. So they must've gotten here somehow. And then he works through all of the possibilities for how they, and he, I mean, he's thinking like, well, they must've gotten here from Noah's Ark, right? You know, but so biologically not quite right, but like he's, he's not, he's also not wrong. Like they did get, get, they had to move between these worlds and he like, works out that they couldn't have come by over the ocean for a few different reasons, including the really clever point that none of these big animals 
that they're found all around the continent that they've been and on all the islands that are really near the coast, but none of the ones that are too far out to swim. Like there were huh. none of these, like there weren't wolves out on the, the, the Antilles, you know, the, and so he said that it seems like they've spread to only the islands that you can reach from land. And if they had been coming across the ocean, like blowing on rafts or whatever, they would have hit like the big islands. And he's right. Like, uh, and he works through a whole bunch of uh, things. He figures out, um, he figures out the existence of the tropopause where the stratosphere reaches. Um, and it's like, like air gets colder as it, as you get higher. And he, he went up mountains and he noticed that it kept getting colder. And, and he was like, you know, there's gotta be a point where it starts getting hotter again because the sun is clearly really hot. Oh, that's really And as you smart. get closer to the sun, um, you know, it must heat it must it must at some point have a minimum temperature and start heating up again. So, you know, there's some layer up there where it's where it's at a minimum temperature. And like he didn't understand about space. He didn't he didn't think there was a vacuum out there, but he was also right. Like the temperature in the solar system hits a minimum at the, at the in the stratosphere and then it starts climbing again and then it it's high through space and then gets really high at the sun. And like that wasn't experimentally confirmed until the 20th century. But um, uh, there was there's one chapter on altitude sickness where he pointed out that um, he talked about how he got really sick climbing a mountain in a way that no one seemed to get sick in the Alps. And he said that he thinks it's because these mountains in Peru were higher and the air gets there's some quality in the air that makes it unable to support life. Uh, you know, something's wrong with it. It's too cold or thin, he said. He didn't know what. And then he noticed that people would die if they kept going up. And he had a line where he was like, you know, there's something really curious I've noticed though that about the air up there, which is that it takes away life. And yet things that have died up there remain in a state of preservation. And the fact that this air both takes away life and yet prevents its decay once it has, you know, been drawn away uh, and, and preserves is very curious. And I swear he was like one step away from figuring out microbiology. <laughs> so reading through this, it was so much fun because he was tackling all these subjects where like, I know the answer now. But looking at like, this is what it's like to tackle, to look at these questions of like, is the tide the same everywhere? Is space over you know, the whole world. If you go around the world, why does your calendar mismatch? You know, uh, why are you one day off from everyone else? Uh, w seeing someone who's really smart but doesn't have the information work on that prob those problems and where they go wrong and what they're able to get right. And it sort of like teach it makes me think about like things that I'm trying to figure out. What am I right about and what, um, like, what stuff might there be a really good leap I could make if I just followed a little farther? And what are like pitfalls where it's like, oh yeah, I'm confident I understand this. I'm completely wrong, but I'm ignoring the signs of it. You know, it's like a really, really cool lesson in that process that that I've never gotten from any, you know, any other book. One, that's one of the best book recommendations we've had on the show. And two, I love that you love that book because there's something so similar in that process that he's going through, like seeing that this is actually a question you should follow all the way through and what you do. Like, I'm not at all surprised that you resonate to that work. Yeah. Um, um, second, <laughs> this is a, a full disclosure. This is a book that's edited by my editor, who's mm -hmm. going to laugh at me because I've been plugging it like harder than I've been plugging my own book. Um, but uh, uh, the uh, Gretchen McCullough's Because Internet, um, which is a book on how language has changed on the internet and how the internet is changing uh, the English language. And it's one of those things where I'm reading it and I'll, I just feel relief that the right person wrote this book, you know, because it's something where 
uh, uh, so every page shows me something where it's like, oh yeah, I've noticed people do that and I don't really know what's up with it. And it's usually people who are doing this, but I don't know why or where that came from. And it's like, she's explaining it. Like she has the answers. Like why do people use tildes to mean sort of like mocking or sarcasm? They'll put them on either sides of words. Like what's the deal with that? And so like, like it's full of like, here is here are things people do with language on the internet and here's how they fit into the broader picture of language. Well, avoiding all of the all of the stuff that people who don't really understand language kind of flock to of like, oh, yeah, it's making us worse at writing mm -hmm. because we're all so casual now and we haven't learned the rules, which is like like a thing that if you if you're really into language, you know, like linguists don't aren't pedantic that way. You know, they're not. Mm -hmm. um, that's a thing that like that you get if you like have a cursory, you know, you, you've encountered language, but but not really like looked at how it's constantly changing and constantly evolving and, and, and through usage. Um, so it's a really good look at the internet with while avoiding a lot of the pitfalls of, from people who just want to yell at other people for using language wrong. And then um, I think the third book is a book that uh, that my mom had when, when I was a kid, um, but it was from... Carl Sagan and uh, Anne Droyan and a couple other people. Uh, it's called Murmurs of Earth. And it's about the record that they put on Voyager, where they recorded a bunch of music and, um, and they had a bunch of messages from Earth on this golden record that was going to go on the Voyager spacecraft and get launched out in, out of the solar system. And they, the, you know, the, the mission planners like got uh, Carl Sagan and, and, and friends to try to figure out what, what to put on there. And one of the things they did was they they included 108 digitized photos, and so 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 Carl and Anne and team were kind of given this task of pick 108 photos to represent Earth in general, which is a like completely impossible task. Um, but they took it really seriously and worked really and like worked through it and just tried to do as good a job of it as they could. And they were really, um, you know, and they were they were really smart and thoughtful people, and so this book collects their hundred and eight photos and their explanation of what they were thinking with each one, and it's really interesting to read because they thought about stuff like if you weren't from Earth, and you saw someone eating grapes, would you know that they were a plant? Would you know that they were <laughs> natural? Would you think? What, would you know that they were in a that this person is standing in a supermarket eating grapes? Would you know that they're about to get arrested because they're like stealing food from the supermarket? Um, like they really had to go back and and you know like they 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 were stuck with like the stock photo library they had and they were coming from their particular cultural context in America. You know they're talking about life as it appears to them, um, but they really tried to tried to do do a good job of that and to think like how would you best represent Earth if you've been assigned to do this, which they literally were. And this spacecraft was never going to be, n no aliens are ever going to find Voyager. You know, um, it's, it's, humans may someday go and get it. Uh, uh, but it's, it's pr pretty much everyone involved knew that this was a, a symbolic gesture more than a real one. But it was a, it was thinking about, they took it seriously as a way to think about the problem of how, of how Earth wants to represent itself and how Earth, can best represent itself. My favorite tidbit from that, which I've mentioned, and um, I, I alluded to this in, uh, I mentioned this in Thing Explainer, um, was that they didn't include a lot of photos of buildings. And the reasons were they figured it wouldn't be obvious whether they were the difference between buildings 
or like coral reefs or like rock formations. If you look at a building, how do you know it's not a crystal? How do you know it's not like a zoomed oh, in photo of a of of a sponge? You know, how do you know that you're not looking at a, a you know, some kind of blocks, like weird geologic formations or like a coral structure that builds naturally with holes in the side that are square because of the material they, you know, grow from. Um, so they didn't include a lot of buildings because it, they figured they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be clear what they were. But one that they did include was a suspension bridge. And the reasons they gave, um, and, and Carl Sagan has talked about this, is that um, a suspension bridge is one of the structures that humans build you know, it's been, they've been built artificially. Um, they don't really occur naturally. But their structure is so completely constrained by physics that, um, like, if you look at the, the 20 longest or largest bridges in the world, they are all suspension bridges and they all look the same. And the reason is, as you scale them up, you converge on that one design. There's no other way to do that. Um, and so the idea was that this is a structure that... If, um, you know, aliens pick this up on some other planet, if they have to cross gaps in sort of the same way that we do with rivers and canyons, and if they're working with kind of the same constraints we are, like they have metals or they have, you know, materials with similar properties, um, and if they work on making these bridges big enough, they are going to converge on a suspension bridge that looks just like ours. And I really like this idea. When, and now whenever I see a suspension bridge, I think about that that this is the thing that there, if there are alien worlds and if they've built structures, th this is the one thing that like we've both tried to build, you know, that we both like, that this is the thing that we have in common and that we would recognize when the other one built it. And, and I just think that's so cool. And so like, and I would never have thought of that, you know, like the, and reading, and so reading their rationale um, often kind of just gave me a new way of looking at the normal, you know, the thing that's in the picture. And and so that I, I really enjoyed that book. I read over it a whole bunch of times as a kid. Randall Monroe, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. This was a really cool conversation. Thank you to Randall Monroe. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I love, I love that he brought up Voyager and the golden record. There's another piece of that story that I, I don't know, that I hold with me. Jimmy Carter wrote a note, President Jimmy Carter then wrote a note that is on that spacecraft. And I'm going to read it. It's a letter that accompanied the golden record. And I'm going to read it just because I think it's beautiful and I think it's kind of amazing to imagine a U.S. president writing this with the intended audience, the intended audience being aliens. So this is Jimmy Carter's statement here on Voyager. This Voyager spacecraft was constructed by the United States of America. We are a community of 240 million human beings among the more than 4 billion who inhabit the planet Earth. We human beings are still divided into nation states, but these states are rapidly becoming a single global civilization. We cast this message into the cosmos. It is likely to survive a billion years into our future when our civilization is profoundly altered and the surface of the earth may be vastly changed. Of the 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, some, perhaps many, may have inhabited planets and spacefaring civilizations. If one such civilization intercepts Voyager and can understand these recorded contents, here's our message. This is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. We are attempting to survive our time so we may live into yours. We hope someday, having solved the problems we face, to join a community of galactic civilizations. This record represents our hope and our determination, 
and our goodwill in a vast and awesome universe. Thank you again to Randall Monroe. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. And my email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Hold up. 